Welcome to The Story Tinker, a place for in-depth analysis of stories, including Midnight Poppyland, Purple Hyacinth, and more. Co-hosted by sharp, witty, and dare I say, thirsty fans, we dive deep into every episode, analyzing character, relationship development, and plot theories. You can follow The Story Tinker on all podcast platforms and videos of most episodes on YouTube. You can also follow The Story Tinker on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like weekly bonus content, sneak peeks, and more, you can support The Story Tinker on Patreon. Thanks for listening to The Story Tinker, and let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Purple Hyacinth, Trouble and Truth. And today we have Corinne and Meg, who have both been on before, and so you can say hi. Hey, I'm Corinne, living in Alexandria, Virginia. I am studying to get my master's in publishing, and I currently run a coffee shop here in D.C. Hi, my name is Meg. I am accountant, currently trying to survive until April 15th, and um, I guess this is my break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Um, podcast for me is also like my my fun time. Okay, so basically last episode, Lauren has found out that the person she was running after is none other than the Purple Hyacinth. And this is how we start off this episode. She asks what the Purple Hyacinth, or she thinks what the Purple Hyacinth. Herman is in front of her holding the bag with the evidence. And she thinks to herself with her eyes widening. So it was him and was running after him. And that's a big deal to her. It's not something that is casual in that world. And then Kim, who is being supportive as usual, says no shame in losing him, Lauren. No one's even gotten near him in the seven years he's been active. And of course, this is a great number to remember. We all remember this number that he's been active for seven years. It gives us a good timeline to think about like when we know his age and when he started. So I guess we may as well say his age now because it's not written anywhere in the text, but the authors have confirmed that he's 24. So if he was active for seven years, that would mean he was 16 when he started. Wait, 17. He's 20. Is it, did I get the date, yet, date right? That he's 24, right? Lauren's 22? Or was it 23 and 21? <laughs> I want to say the 24, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I think I also remember the 24, so then, yeah, so seven. Oh, yeah, so seven, um, right, four, and then another three, so 17. So, yeah, so starting, he started being active at 17. That is pretty young. And we're going to, you know, see a bit more into his past, but it gives us a good understanding of um when we see those flashbacks in the future episodes um so we can understand how old he was and you know and then kim tells her you're lucky to be alive which is definitely something that everyone's thinking now lauren that is reverberating through lauren's head then she thinks to herself i really should have known purple hyacinth the most powerful weapon in the phantom scythe arsenal and that is in a background of red obviously violence, blood, and then there's these spooky images. Looks like it's a skull in a robe, black robe. And then we have this <laughs> very dazzling image of Kirin. They have this amazing way of like displaying this arrogance and just presumptuousness, um, complete self-confidence, um, and a very arresting look on, on Kirin and on many of the other characters. They just have this 
also this way of framing the the person or the image in just a very striking way. So it's this beautiful, <laughs> detestable image of bloody Kieran. Um, shirts open as usual. He has bandages across his chest. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's his sword. Yeah, it's his sword splitting like his face. And he's, you know, his fingers resting on it. So he's just very, very comfortable with violence and with his weapon. And it just, like, adds another layer of strikingness to this image. And she says, responsible for the bloodiest crimes our city has ever seen. And again, that look on his face just, it gives you the idea that he doesn't care. It's not the look of somebody who's, in this image at least, it's not the look of somebody who's forced to do it. It's not the look of somebody who feels guilty the image that everybody thinks of him as and that he presents himself as for most of the cartoon is like this irreverent blasphemous you know just someone who doesn't care about what he's doing and just completely devoid of moral attachments that's how he wants and i think it's him. super interesting that that like one panel of light shining on him right so he's mostly in shadow mostly dark but he's a little bit of light a little bit of goodness maybe we're gonna see from him I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, and he also has like a bunch of red highlights, which as though he's bathed in red light, which again is like all the blood that he's shed. Huh. And when we think about we you know, we see responsible for all the bloodiest crimes our city's ever seen, we see a bunch of citizens frightened, terrified, running away, wide-eyed, and then Lauren says he left no trace, no evidence. And that this is really gruesome image. <laughs> and it's the Phantom Sight's um, symbol in the back. And it's the, it's the clearest I've ever seen it because um, we see like this hooded figure and we see the scythe and that's kind of scythe is kind of like, looks like it's um, in the swoop of the scythe is like the circle and like you can mm-hmm. kind of see like a blood trail. That's what it reminds me of at least. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they do disguise themselves so this robed hooded figure is you know it represents like the anonymity of the phantom side where they don't and it, it's another adds another layer of i think threat threat when they have that kind of costume and of course there's this very this is man who's nailed up um and this i mean it's it's very disturbing um he's obviously dead and then there's a there's a purple hyacinth tucked in um his shirtless but there's a purple hyacinth tucked in like his the cloth that's wrapping him very gross, very disgusting I mean very horrific so except for one thing and then what's the one thing that he leaves behind and you see the the, the crime scene that they're at now um, De La Roca with the gun still in his hands and blood all over his signature purple hyacinth that's what he leaves and that is what um, we see so we see a bunch of we see a couple more images we see I think it's also Lady Grayson who also has the purple hyacinth on her and again bloody beautiful purple hyacinths so next to each next to each of the corpse he leaves in his wake and you see another image of the purple hyacinth you know bathed in a pool of blood and she says I was almost one of them except I don't think she ever was almost one of them no yeah, I guess up to the last minute where he almost killed her. She could have been one of them, yeah. Well, <laughs> what do you guys have to say about this introduction to our main pro- male protagonist? 
I think I think this least... is like you know. In... <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. I I think in like in like movies or TV shows when they like say the title and you're like, oh, they said it, it's coming. Like that was that moment for me, and I was like, this is why it's purple hyacinth, and like you get all the the details behind that. This was like the pivotal like early episode where I was like. Oh, okay, we're getting all the backstory. Like, this is what's happening. We're going to get it. I just really like the establishment of the Purple Hyacinth as somebody that is a force we re reckon with, for sure. And um, just really setting up that that bloody, violent, and uh, the notoriety that he has uh, in this city. I think that was one of the best introductions to um, that his character, I think, that we could have gotten. And also, because, I mean, they draw him very attractively. I mean, he is the attractive person in the story, but they're also like, don't forget, he's kind of also a killer. That's a dream I told you about that I had. Um, so to podcast readers, I had a dream about Kieran last night. And when I told my husband the dream, he was like, you know what I would have been doing during that time? I would have been calling 911 and be like, you're going to jail, bro. My husband does not believe in loving criminals for some odd reason. Well, I mean, for serial killers, I kind of get it, but... <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I mean, just that image that we had here, I mean, it's, it's honestly pretty horrific. I, mm -hmm. I, I under um, you can understand why people hate him. And so now we go back to the present and Marsh says, you know, civilians sometimes claim to see his shadow running across the rooftops at night, which just adds like another aura of mystery and myth. You know, it's, he's, he's like a little bit larger than life to the citizens of Art Hollis. And, and then we have a flashback to, you know, him actually zipping along on the rooftop, presumably that night. And he says, but no one has ever gotten close enough to be able to describe him as precisely as Officer Sinclair did tonight. And then, of course, you know, we, we only see half of her face and it's still shrouded in a mask. And we're all like, we know what she's thinking. She's like, well, <laughs> could tell you more, right? <laughs> she knows she's hiding information. And he says, we may have lost valuable assets tonight, which um, that's the De La Roca and Grayson. Did he, did they say it? I don't remember which chapter they said it in that they were, um, what their role they was. Yeah. Right. Okay. So basically they were, they were trying to spy for the police in the purple, in the phantom sites. So that's the asset that they lost, but now we know what we're looking for at least. And the details we're able to provide tonight are of immeasurable value. And he has this very proud smile on his face. Well done as always, Officer Sinclair. And I just feel like the guilt, like coursing through Lauren at this point. <laughs> and she thinks to herself, she's like, well done. After all these years, we finally could have had him. And it's so terrible. This is close up of his face and it's terrible because he's so beautiful, but it's like, and she's like, I let that bastard go. And you know, it's her pinning him down. But beauty is a little bit, I don't know, I'm just saying, when I just see that face, I'm like, I could never arrest him. <laughs> terrible. Um, yeah, I think if I ever was on a case with someone like this, I would have to recuse myself, be like, I can't be judged, I can't be unbiased. Please, somebody else <laughs> judge this. <laughs> all that, I think all got... that. Go ahead, Michael. Um, all that praise that uh, Marge was going on, like you were saying, though, I mean, just imagining her sitting there, like, just, he's rubbing salt in it without knowing it because she's just sitting there 
knowing she's withholding information and um keeping her. i'm honestly shocked at this point in the story that she kept her mouth shut though honestly i mean i get why but if you put that into a real life situation at this point i would be spilling the beans like I would be, I'd be like, actually, um, so blue eyes and <laughs> just, I would go off. I mean, but that's just what I would do. <laughs> and like, it seems as though, you know, what's interesting when I read your story, that's when I realized, um, in the, in the later chapter, a little bit more of what was going through her head. But, um, I think, you know, you just see the strength of Lauren's obsession with, mm-hmm with finding out what happened at the Aldale tree bombing and taking down the Phantom site. Like she is willing to compromise, you know, a, a strict vision of law and order and of, of proper protocol in order to achieve her goals. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a quite a, a hard thing for her to do, but that's how obsessed she is. Yeah. And we're going to come down to it as we go into the story, but we're probably coming right back to that point. Um, and uh, I don't know if you read the notes I sent over, but like I said, note person, always have to have the notes. And um, th- that obsession, and it's this chapter is amazing from the standpoint, like it might as well be called Lauren Loops or Conflicted Cop because this whole chapter is demonstrating how much Lauren goes back and forth between hating this assassin and wanting to arrest him and then wondering about his offer and his true character and her obsession. Like she's constantly at war within herself between being a good cop and then following her heart, which is this whole chapter, I feel like. So she thinks herself, I let that bastard go. And Herman, at this point, right after March compliments her, he says, it was a reckless move. You should have waited for backup. You were very lucky tonight. So you kind of get the impression he is always ragging on her. <laughs> like, you can't let a good thing stay good. It's got to put her down somehow. And then, you know, Lauren gives this, like, grimace, sarcastic smile. She's like, ha, lucky. And Will says he probably didn't consider that the maid would be awake or that the police could respond as soon as we did. It's fortunate we happened to live nearby. And then Kim says, which is interesting, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, or maybe it was intentional, two murders back to back, make sure we see him, but still can't catch him, the power play. What do you think of the fact that Kieran was like seen? Do you think it was on purpose or not? I'm waiting for Corin, I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I'd never, I never thought he meant to be seen and I try to think like what would be his purpose in that unless he wanted hopefully one of them to go after him and make a deal because he did see I think they talk about it later down in the panel that he saw Lauren earlier on her date so like did he try to set that up so she could follow him that would be the only reason I could think of like him wanting someone to follow him and get caught for someone to follow him I think that's where a lot of people, at least that's where I kind of get hook, get hung up with the story, just because if it was planning to meet up with her, there's a lot of uh, coincidences that would have to happen in order for to make that work. And um, uh, there is a active theory on the Discord right now where it says that you know Loon's creation was a whole plot, and and, and you know it's it's it was from the very beginning like that. 
um, which is just a really cool theory. It has a, it has some holes and that kind of thing, but the idea is really interesting. I think. Um, I mean, the person who came up with it, like, whew, boom, mind blown. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess if, ignoring the idea that it wasn't on purpose or Moon wasn't a creation or something like that, if we we're to bypass that. I think more than anything, he's coming out of retirement in a sense. He's just coming back from overseas, as we find out later on. And he is, he's making a statement. He's kind of just showing off. He's being cocky. He let himself be seen by the cops and he didn't care. It's interesting because I, I actually thought like, especially when he started saying he just came back, that maybe he just got slower and like he hasn't gotten fully back into it yet. You know, he's after you come back from the beach, you're not exactly at your most productive. So I'm not, we don't know that he was at the beach, but whatever. <laughs> or if it was a, a vacation or a work vacation, you know, some kind of work vacation. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I was, I was talking with my husband about um, the difference between the Midnight Popularland fandom and the, and the Purple Hyacinth fandom and that, um, the Purple Hyacinth fandom is not as thirsty at, at all. Like, not even, like, a fraction as thirsty as the Midnight Popularity fandom is. I mean, I think the Midnight Popularity fandom is older. So it's, like, extremely explicitly sexual. Um, and the Purple Hyacinth fandom is not. Like, at the most, they'll say, like, oh, he's hot. But, like, they don't really get into it. And it's not It's not very lustful. <laughs> it's just very interesting. Just in my observation. <laughs> no, I've kind of seen, seen the same, but it's it's cool it's, I think it's interesting to see like the different um, demographics who gravitate to different webtoons um, I don't know I thought that like there it is definitely an older population that likes the midnight popular I, I mean I love that one I, I do but um, I, I think that's interesting just what what comic attracts what demographic another thing I've noticed is like the purple hyacinth fandom is very 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 into theory and um I mean, for me, it's like one of my, it's really my first time getting into a mystery because I don't read mysteries. So I'm reading it and what most attracts me is like the, the human element, like the the part about Lauren and her struggle and Kieran and his, mm-hmm. you know, emotions. And I enjoy the mystery, but it's not what, you know, drew me to the story. But the fandom loves discussing the theories. And yeah. because I'm assuming most people enjoy it for the mystery. So like their minds are occupied by the theories. So I find it also interesting to see to see that and what people focus on well as far as the theories go i think the reason why i'm attracted to the theories at least is because it changes it would change my perspective on a certain character like me i'm all about the character arcs and um like you said lauren's journey and that kind of thing so if it changes my perspective on a character then that would be really interesting there's a couple different characters which if they do end up playing a part in the mystery it could potentially change how we view them as a character and I am down for anything like that, like um, character growth, character arcs, character redemption, that I'm all about that. So that that's why I love it. So here they speculate. Herman um, responds to Kim saying that maybe it was a power play and he said plausible Adele. He has been taunting, uh, he's been taunting the royal families for years now. And he, you know, grasps the purple hyacinth, which obviously is... Um, from the symbol, right? And he says he co-ops their family crest as some sort of sick joke. And then we see um, the Artalis symbol and it is a stag, um, Artalis, Avastar, 
familia, that's the Avisbar family, um, Fortisecute, Service, Anistat, Bill, Hayes, and this. We discussed this in a different episode, um, but basically it's something like be strong, look like the deer, and beautiful like a hyacinth. I think it was something like that. So yeah, and you know, it's, it's on the, the royal symbol. So what he assumes is that it's just, you know, taunting them and saying, hey, um, I'm, the, I'm killing your citizens and you can't do anything about it. And, you know, Will says it's a, it's a threat more likely. And then Lauren says, she says, what if they're an apology? Hmm. Now, it's pretty early on, but she mentions like this very crucial point. And we we get to know a little bit later about Lauren's knowledge of flowers. So, you know, working at the way in the purple hyacinth does mean apology and regret. So I don't know if we don't know yet necessarily that Lauren knows this, but she definitely is raising this. And I think I, when I first read this, my first thought was that, well, well, we'll actually see her memory. So I'll just save it for that, that this thought came from her encounter with, with Kieran tonight. And Kim says that's impossible. Any regret he might've had has long been drowned by the blood on his hands. And then Lauren thinks back to when he was above her and he said that lie and I have no regrets. And that's his, um, I guess, Save the Cat moment. Um, there's this screenwriting book called Save the Cat. And it, the opening premise of that book is that in order for you to get invested in a character, you have to have in the uh, beginning of the story, at the beginning in, in the introduction of a character, a Save the Cat moment where the guy does, the guy or the character does something good like Save the Cat. And then even if he's an evil mafia person or uh, abusive person, you have... Um, a connection to that per- that character and you like them and you want that you're interested in their story so for me this is like the save the cat moment where he says and i have no regrets because then you know like he is a human being down there and there is a story and there is a conflict and there is uh, a struggle within him so that's what makes us interested in him rather than okay he's a disgusting human being and like who wants him right so lauren is thinking about that because she didn't forget that moment and to me, like the whole, it's one of the most important moments in the whole story. Yeah, for sure. I've never heard of that Save the Cat. That is that is really interesting, but it is it is a good point. Like you can't make a character so despicable to not give the reader anything to hang on to, to hope that they could be good. So I've never heard of that. That's awesome. That that I've never heard, like obviously thought about that, you know, idea in storytelling before, but never heard it called Save the Cat. I have a couple of books on screenwriting and that that's one of them. So thank you to Saul Blinkoff who recommended that, <laughs> that book. And, but Lauren doesn't read any of that because obviously that would um, put her word into uh, doubt. And she just says, you're right. And March says, regardless, this isn't his usual political terrorism. Rocca, Rocca and Grayson were recently recruited as double agents. They were assigned to try to infiltrate the Phantom Sites underground network. Only those with highest security clearance were aware. Which I'm finding funny that he's just saying this in front of everybody. Yeah, that is, <laughs> like, that's not the same thing. <laughs> like, are they, is everyone in the room with the highest security clearance? I don't know. <laughs> I was like, how did March know that? Is he high security clearance? Is he like the head <laughs> of the detective, uh, pre- you know, or whatever? Like, how did March know? And why is he announcing it? <laughs> You know, Inspirational said something interesting um, over the course of like the times I've been listening to him. He's like, he, he's like, the APD is not super professionally run. And he's like, there's cases where they're not being professional and objective. And 
following the right proper protocol. And I'm like, you know, I guess this is one of them. <laughs> but it's okay, whatever. It's, honestly, to me, it just makes it more realistic because, oh, you bet organizations are not always professional. <laughs> you know, people make mistakes, people say things they shouldn't, people forget. <laughs> Like, for sure. And he says, seems like the leader is always one step ahead of us. And Herman says, Hawks, Liddell, Sinclair, I want to thank you three for coming so quickly tonight. Um, he put her name last. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> well, I guess it's also in alphabetical order, theoretically. <laughs> uh, the investigation unit will take care of the rest. You are now dismissed. And they just, you know, say, yes, sir. Um, there's a nice shot of all three of them, you know, with their masks on, just being obedient and following instructions. And but Kim, as soon as they leave, she's like, "What a prick!" <laughs> Still in the house, and she, you know, they take their masks off, and then she's already abusing her employer. <laughs> you think she could wait until she's out of the building where he can't hear her? Like smart <laughs> move. <laughs> she doesn't care. Yeah. And she's like, good to see he still has it out for you, Lauren. And Lauren just rolls her eyes. <laughs> so, you know, we learn um, something about their relationship. And Will, of course, <laughs> yeah, with that going, he's like, are you sure you don't mean you, Kim? With a little mischievous smile. And she's like, what do you mean? And then they just start arguing again. <laughs> there they go. They just set them off and they're bickering and fighting once more. <laughs> And Lauren no- normally finds this amusing, we get the sense, but now she's she's lost in thought. She is really thinking about everything that happened that night. And they ask her, Lauren, you coming? And she, you know, she's startled. She's like, huh? She's like, oh, yes. And now we have a beautiful image of a night sky and, you know, a lantern, street lamp with the houses, and they're all walking home together. And I love the lighting. I always love the lighting in this um, in this comic comic story I don't like to say comic I feel like it's not a comic but in this story um you know there's like the street lamps and it's just always beautiful and they're walking together they look like you can tell that they're pretty close um in terms of their relationship and it's just lovely to see and yawns and she's like finally it's time to go home and then she takes out a gold pocket watch and she's like whoa and looking at it and then she says it sure is running faster today but that is a lie. <laughs> and we see on, we get a close-up of the watch and it says DL. And she says, oh, it's super late, which that is true. It is super late. Now the clock is set to, it's like 2.25. No. Yeah. 2.25? 1.25. Yeah. Something like that. It's like 2.25. Um, which theoretically could be 2.25 a.m., theoretically but um we get the impression that it's not an operational pocket watch so that's a mystery you know why does she have it why did she have to lie and say it's running faster today why does she have to pretend to her close friends something over something that's pretty benign like what's the point yeah this whole setup with them walking out into the night sky i just they, and especially the beginning of a story is obviously the most critical because you have to care about the characters. You have to care about not just the plot and being the story, but you have to be invested in the journeys of the characters themselves. And very clearly in just a couple panels, you see the dynamic between the trio, 
um, you see that they have a friendship and a close bond with each other. And these are the ride or die friends that we love to see. And of course, some of us will either relate that to our own experiences or um, experiences that we'd want to have. You know what I'm saying? Those, those little dreams of, you know, just getting together and being close to somebody. I think, I mean, it's just natural for us all to want that. Um, the scene with the pocket watch, and I might be an outlier here, um, Kim randomly pulling out her pocket watch just to make a joke about the time, it just, it always felt a little weird to me, like a little out of place. Um, I get that they had to introduce the watch. We had to establish that Kim has a past, that there's a mystery there um, with the DL and everything, but it does feel just a little clunky to me just because she, up. this is like the only time she displays the watch prominently and willingly. Um, every other time in the webtoon, she's kind of making an effort to keep it out of view or only pulls it out when she's alone. So to cop to randomly like draw attention to it in front of the others, I mean, if you read the rest of the comic, it does feel a little weird just because it's the only time she does that. But that might be just me reading into it, so. And I think it's just expository, honestly. Yeah. When I, when I first read this chapter, um, I was like, oh, she's pulling it out, making a time joke because she wants to give them time alone. Because I was like, oh, are they going to make <laughs> Lauren and Will a um, Of course, knowing now what we know. But I really did think she was like making that old, like, oh, look at the time kind of joke. And she had to go. <laughs> then I was like, that's why I thought it was in red, like why she was lying. Yeah, but it, you know, it turns out when, when we read the rest of the episode, I also thought there was something going on between Lauren and Will. And I know originally um, the authors did intend for Lauren and Will to be engaged. So I want, it's possible like that some of this is a leftover of that. <laughs> uh, and also in terms of like DL, so we know that um, Kim's last name is Liddell. So mm -hmm. we can assume that the L could belong to her family name. So now it's like, okay, who's the D? Anywho. Maybe. Still make me want to give her a hug. I don't know anything, but at that point, I wanted to give her a hug. Yeah, and it's... It, it, I, I understand why, because if she... If there's something in her life that makes her feel the need to lie to her best friends, it's something that she can't tell them about. That's mm -hmm. something that's very deep down inside and private for her. It's something that really affects her if she can't even tell them about it. Do we know at this point if Lauren knows about her family? I know Will didn't know because we had that chapter where she, you know, kind of admitted it to him. But I, do we know at this point if Lauren knows anything or no? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, she hasn't. I don't think we've, if Lauren has mentioned anything. Well, we'll find out. So Kim says, all right, guys, I'm heading home. I intend to sleep like a log for the rest of the night. Um, but then she grabs Will and she's like, but you, William, make sure she gets home safe or I'll kill you. <laughs> and that's not a lie, by the way. <laughs> and she, which, by the way, I actually always wondered, um, in terms of sarcasm, like when people are, are blatantly sarcastic, sometimes it says it as, it, you know, Lauren picks it up as a lie and sometimes it's not. I'm like, you know, like, is she really going to kill him? Like, is Lucas really going to kill them every time he says he's going to kill someone? Like... You know, it's like sarcasm. It's an obvious lie. Like, so does that even bother to get mentioned in a red? Like, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I'm not going to think too hard about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So she says, ciao, peasants. And she says goodbye. It's cute. Very cute image. 
And now we have, you know, just Will and Lauren walking together. She says, bye, Kim. And she tells, well, don't worry about it. I'll be fine on my own. See you tomorrow. But <laughs> it's a moment like this that made me think it was romantic. Like he grabs her arm and it's a close up. Um, it it mm-hmm. does look kind of romantic. So maybe it is a leftover and they just didn't want to rewrite it. I don't know. <laughs> and he's like, do you seriously think I'm going to let you walk home alone tonight? And she's like, what? And he says, and again, a close up of his very nice blue eyes. That you just spent half the night chasing down the most notorious killer in the city. He could be anywhere waiting for you. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I know where he'll be waiting for me. Um, she's like, I'll be fine, Will. She turns away. You know better than anyone else I can defend myself. So, And she clenches her wrist, which I think is is a sign of like what she's thinking about. But she's also very independent. And I totally get it because I'm exactly like that. Like I... Um, if we're gonna talk about like what trope tropes in tropes in <laughs> stories, there's the one of like oh the man like swoops you up and like he defends you and like he defends you against like the bad guys. I am the opposite of that. I would get so offended. I was like, let me put me down. Like let me fight my own battle. Like go away. I'm very independent. So I totally relate to Lauren. <laughs> I get that, but at the same time, I'm like, if you want to attack somebody with me, I'm. I mean. Team up, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, don't be silly. Of course I know, but won't you let an old friend walk you home just this once? So, okay. So he's established himself, he said, that as, you know, an old friend rather than anything romantic. And he says, our houses are in the same direction anyways. And she's like, fine, mother. And it's cute. You know, she like has her arm on his shoulder and they're just joking around and it is really nice to see the relationship between the two like well, don't you just slow me down my bed awaits she's like very funny because he's like yeah at least one of us can sleep tonight which so he's it sounds like he's saying about himself that he is not gonna sleep tonight because of what he's seen i always thought now knowing that what we know when i went back and read that was he's not gonna get any sleep because he sits up with his mother that that was my thought which Aww. is even sadder <laughs> but the whole interaction between Lauren and Will is just so wholesome it's so sweet and I love it and um I I love the little like it's amazing it's the best type of storytelling when you can take tiny little phrases or just little motions to tell something about a character so what we already gathered from Will is he's got a huge heart he is the mama bear of the trio and he's he's the motherly one like he's the guy in the group and he's the motherly one and that already tells us a lot about his character and we also know that Lauren has been through some crap tonight and she's putting on such a good face for him like she's making jokes she's asking him about his family and she's being concerned about him and I mean that's something that we kind of already know about Lauren though she kind of puts on a face for both of her friends she doesn't really let them peek in um, she's let Kim peek in a little bit, but Will, I, I think she's afraid he's got so much going on in his life that she doesn't want to add to that. So she just shows him the sunshine. Yeah. And we, we talk a lot about how Kim does that, or we will, at least over the course of the story. But yeah, Lauren is very individualistic and she doesn't want to share her burden with anyone else. She wants to always appear strong and capable which puts her like a lot in common with a certain other somebody. And I think that's like a big part of the whole story is how much those two have in common. They're in a way foils for each other, very strongly so. 
so. Um, and he says, don't you miss our old academy days? And she's like, oh, the good old days at the midnight calls about deranged criminals. <laughs> yeah, and like she says, simpler times, certainly. And that, that's definitely something that friends do. Like if you've been friends with someone from childhood, there's something different than, you know, when, when you're friends with someone as an adult, because when you have that shared experience of being a child, it is like she said, a simpler time, a time when you usually don't have the care of the world on your shoulders. Uh, if you've had a, if you've had a relatively, you know, normal, secure childhood, that was probably the best time in your life, <laughs> you know, with no, um, no worries. So there's something very strong that when people have connected since they were kids. And, you know, we get a little bit more insight of their backgrounds because Will says, sometimes I wonder if we really should have graduated early. So they graduated early. You can kind of get the sense they were clever and capable. <laughs> and she's like, how oh, we would have been far too bored. Otherwise, we were already driving our instructors mad. And true, but who thought we'd go from paying, playing cops and robbers in your mother's garden to this? And now, you know, mentioning she's mentioning his mom's garden. So we'll just keep it in mind. It may be, may be crucial later. Maybe not. It may totally not be important, but it may be. So... <laughs> I'm remembering this. So Lauren's mom had a garden. Let's just, we just know that. And, you know, she's looking up in the sky and she says, definitely not me. Um, probably thinking like, as a kid, she never thought she would be in this situation. She's looking at the sky. She thinks how quickly things change. And then she asks him, how has your mother been lately? Which, with a very worried expression on her face. Poor Will. He looks down at the floor and just says the usual doesn't meet her eyes i feel so bad for him <laughs> we don't even know what's going on with his mom but you can tell he's sad i just love that we know a history and know that each character has a backstory by episode six that is some fantastic pacing right there and she gives him a very worried look you know her um eyes are narrowed a little bit and she just says i see and then she looks away and says, well, I'm sure her health will improve soon. And you get the impression, like, if we could read Lauren's lies, this would be a lie. And um, you, you can kind of see that she's not looking him in the eye because she doesn't really think his, her health will improve. And it's tough to say that and admit that to somebody that you think their mom is going to die. But we do see that they've done everything that they could. Because she says, with everything you've tried, something has to work. So they've clearly been very persistent and diligent about trying to help his mother. Ah, oh, poor Will. It's just a panel of him looking all sad and melancholic and awash in beautiful streetlights. And um, she says, speaking of work, you've been sad. But she decides to lighten the mood. You know, she sees that he's sad and she wants to make him happy and she says speaking of work you've been slacking off on your office duty she like kind of pokes him it's like your squad is running wild just look at me and Kim <laughs> and then his face gets hilarious this like skeletal look <laughs> he's like ah Kim Lattell that woman drives me insane she never listens and every time I open my eyes, she argues which is so funny because it's like my first thought was like thou protested too much <laughs> What, so I love about, 
this dynamic because once Tim leaves, then Lauren kind of steps in and becomes that person that's trying to, it's like they're tag teaming, trying to cheer up Will like all the time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she's also, Lauren is raising, bringing up Kim on purpose, trying to like, you know, kind of egg him on and like, be like, okay, Will, what do you think of her now? What do you think of her now? And every time he responds, like, oh, she's driving me crazy, she's crazy, she's driving me crazy. Then at some point she's like waiting, when will the response be? Hmm, I think I like this girl. Matchmaker. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally relate to that. <laughs> Cause like there was no need to, to mention this. It was it was quite deliberate. The little smiles, everything is a telltale. Mm -hmm. And she says, huh, God bless her. And she's like, isn't she the best? And he responds, the worst. Curse the day she was assigned to me. Yeah, and she said she'd be hurt if she heard that. And then Will says something, she's lucky, she's observant and never misses her target. So Will, uh, Kim has this particular skill that um, endears her to the populace. So they arrive, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly to Will, I guess. So again, another image of the stars and we arrive at this very nice house, um, Victorian, very ornate, has a lot of molding and it's beautiful balcony nice house and you know they're just laughing you can tell they've had a nice time nice walk home and he looks down at her very like uh fondly he says you know lauren a lot's been different since we got our badges and by the way i could totally see this as like uh if this was still part of the fiance scene just <laughs> and they're at the door and he says but i'm glad something didn't change at all and he's looking, you know, at smilingly at the house. It seems like he has fond memories of the house itself. And she says, some things never will. Now, thank you, gentlemen. The lady has been delivered safely. You can go to sleep, too. So <clears throat> you get the sense that Will is um, a gentleman here, right? He's He believes in escorting women home. And he has, like, chivalrous notions. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to see you tomorrow. Good night, Lauren. And she smiles as she waves, but then the second he like has turned around, her smile fades. You know, this is like the, the facade she's been putting up just drops. What we were talking about earlier, she's putting on a really good act, kind of stepping up, playing the Kim role. And then as soon as she leaves, the whole evening comes right back. Yeah. She walks in the door and she just thinks of everything that he said to her. She thinks, you're not doing this because of your occupational responsibility. And she just, her eyes are really contemplative and you can tell she's taking it very seriously. She looks like she has a little bit of self-hatred on her on her face because she, she kind of recognizes she has a problem. Um, and we'll see this throughout the story where she knows she's obsessed but she can't help herself. So yeah, the truth hurts, right? If something is not true, she wouldn't be thinking about it, but it is true. And she thinks again to his words, it's personal. And where is she? She's at her box with all the newspapers thrown in. I mean, like what more proof do you need? Like she is obsessed. She picks up the newspaper that she threw in earlier. And she says, who do you think I am, bastard? Allying myself with the most loathed criminal in the city? the purple hyacinth and but then again she thinks back to his statement you and i share the same goal find the leader and destroy him and it's completely true so it's like that 
temptation right in front of her, you know, something that she really wants. Which goes back to the, what I said earlier, just this whole chapter just being her inner conflict because she's got this, she wants to be a good cop, but then she's got this obsession. She's got what the law says, and then she's got what her heart says. And I love the irony. Irony is like my favorite thing in any sort of story. Um, she's clearly convic- conflicted, even though she tries to convince herself that she's not interested in teaming up with Hyacinth and Potty over there. Um, when, you know, spoilers, <laughs> she totally is. Um, and this whole scene right here where she she tosses the newspaper and she dramatically whips open the curtain and then closes it again with, you know, just clenched fists. Um, I find it interesting how she seems like just on the cusp of letting the whole obsession go. Like she's just, she's kind of almost abhorrent. Like, wow, this obsession brought me to the edge of teaming up with a criminal. Maybe this isn't good for me. Maybe this isn't healthy. Like, I don't know if that's just me, but she feels really on the cusp of just letting the whole thing go in that scene. She just seems over it, like frustrated, done. Um, it's just, it looks so final. That was it. That, that was one thing that kind of hooked me as I was going back and rereading. I was just like, wow, this, she feels like she's about to make a big decision for herself as a character here. And then um, even after like meeting the Perplicence and everything she learned that night, I think it's ironic that that was the night she considered dropping it. I don't know. I don't know if she considers dropping it. I think that it's something that maybe she wants to, she wants to want to drop, but she doesn't actually want to. <clears throat> I think she recognizes how, how crazy she is over this and she wishes she could stop, but I don't think she can. So I think she might like make dramatic motions like that out of a desire to stop, but I don't think at the end of the day, she, she has the ability to. I mean, there wouldn't be a story if she didn't. So like the rest of everything that happens <laughs> is because she can't stop herself. It's a, it's a, it's a hard struggle to watch though. I mean, to see her so conflicted like that and just the emotion and everything like that. Have, I mean, a lot of people relate to that. Just they have something that they know that they love to do or they know they're obsessed with or it's in their life and they want to let it go, but they can't. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, no matter what the situation is, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Oh, I totally relate. <laughs> yeah. And... So now she, um, she she thinks no one's ever seen him and lived to tell the tale. And she walks towards the set of curtains, except, and then she, like you said, dramatically flings <laughs> it open. And you see, this is like the quintessential, this is meme that's very popular. I don't, I don't know what it's from. I think it's from The Office. I don't watch it, but it's this guy at this bulletin board with like a bunch yeah. of red strings like, so it's, <laughs> yeah so it's basically like super it's a meme when you want to make fun of someone who's like going down the rabbit hole of theories and here we go lauren has that board with the red string tacked all over it and you see yeah there's like on top it says allendale train station bombing you have a map you have looks like memos a lot of newspapers postcards pictures and yeah this looks like if there's um, JFK picture of JFK up there in the newspaper. <laughs> so, and then you see the hat, that hat from the newsboy hat over there with a patch. And she says, ever since that day, I wanted to take down the monsters responsible for his death. 
they took the person I cherished most from me. And you have this clipboard with the picture of a little boy. We don't get to see his face right here, but it's a little boy. All the red strings are pointed to him. He's clearly the focus. And there he's wearing that newsboy hat. And it's just, you can feel the pain of her missing him from this image. He is the focus of her life. Hmm. Ah, she thinks to herself, I want to avenge him. And she has this really, really, really like kind of depressive, somber look on her face. And they wanted to spare others the same fate. So, you know what's interesting is what's first is the desire for revenge, and what's second is the desire to protect others. So, I wouldn't necessarily say it's in the right order. <laughs> I mean, it's again understandable, but it's not coming from a place of like healing or it's coming from a bitter place rather than a peaceful place. There's a lot of unrest within her. And she says, my own search led me nowhere for 10 years. And you see a whole stack of papers, case unsolved, case unsolved, case unsolved. Um, looks like she's been really, really working at it for 10 years. And now this assassin proposes he'll help me. And he says, you know, she quotes back his line, I would be your best asset. And then she thinks to herself, but this quest almost destroyed me before. And we don't know what she's referring to, but we'll find out. And yeah, like you said, she throws the newspaper with a lot of force seems like she's really really angry and she just bangs her head on the bulletin board and like, she looks like she's screaming you really should let go lauren like you said like she understands that it's unhealthy <laughs> and yeah she dramatically closes the curtains and she thinks back to his statement meet me at the bridge tomorrow at midnight and she's just hunched over and then she leans back up inhales runs her fingers through her hair and just tries to think think clearly and she says <laughs> she tells herself I won't have anything to do with him it's long over looks at the window and tries to convince herself that she can move on I love is, that last line that it's long over and like my mind instantly goes the lie detector determined that was a lie <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> Uh, I mean, I I'm think she was able to be that delusional, honestly, <laughs> to say that. I feel like she's just trying to convince herself again. I feel like it's just a struggle she constantly goes through of like, now it's over, I'm going to get put up. And Meg, I was in the same position when I read this. I was like, she's on the cusp of just dropping this. Like, it's like, I feel like she struggles with it like constantly every day in her life. This is just a lie she tells herself. It's long over. I'm not going to do it. But you are. Because you can't, she can't give it up. Yeah, and Inspirational, um, in his video, um, said he was like, oh, I'm surprised that, because we see later on that they get the newspaper delivered to their house, the Le Journal, and he was like, oh, I'm surprised that Lauren had to buy it, and like, why wasn't it delivered at their house that day? And I was like, Uncle Tristan probably took it away because he knew she was obsessed, and he probably was like, okay, that's the headline, I'm taking that newspaper away from her so she can't read it. <laughs> but of course, did that work? No. <laughs> Can you imagine being a family member in this situation, though, and watching them destroy themselves or just drown their life away in something like that? That that would kill me, honestly. I mean, and I'm an obsessive person. I have an obsessive personality. I get on one thing and, like, I run with it for weeks. Like, my husband showing me Doctor Who was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but 
just watching someone do that to an unhealthy degree, I mean, that would kill, that would drain me, not much less me being that person. I just watching that, I can't even imagine, honestly. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting? Like we, throughout this whole story, we'll see that Lauren and, and Kim, um, Kieran are foiled for each other. But when I first, there's a lot of flaws about Lauren that I didn't realize the first time reading it around because she's presented to be the cop and the moral figure. But when you think more deeply about her, you realize there's a lot of personality flaws that um, restored her thinking. And um, you kind of recognize that both she and Kieran have this obsession and are willing to do whatever it takes to, to, to get their goal. And again, and maybe not in the healthiest of ways. So I'm very curious to see again more of how it plays out. But it's nice to have a main character that is so flawed, but in a very um, relatable way. And not in a, I mean, Kieran's flawed in like a murderer kind of way, but she's flawed in like a very normal person kind of way. (laughs) Yeah. But I like that in the sense that they're kind of a mirror to each other. The only difference is is Lauren was raised in a family of cops and uh, Kieran was raised by a bunch of assassins and, you know, a gang. But they're still, like, very much alike. And the second time, I mean, reading this the second or third time, you really see how very much alike they are. And honestly, to a scary degree, like, if Lauren was raised in the Phantom Side, would she be, like, a rootin' tootin', gun shooting kind of, like... <laughs> Would she be? Would she be another Bella? I mean, yeah, that's great. I think about that question a lot. Like, well, not a lot because I, I don't like to speculate too much. But you know, I see so clearly how I'm a product of my environment and of my um, upbringing, and I just really wonder to myself, like, how would I have been if I'd been raised completely differently? Yeah. And I, there is an element of personality because, like, I could see how within my siblings, uh, we had a relatively mostly our experience was the same we went to different schools so that was I guess you could say different but we grew up in the same house and we had the same you know strong influences and then we each chose a different path so I find that interesting that there is an element of personality and inherent like of just how we were born but like so much of our our life is how we were raised and it's just mind-boggling to think like if I would have been dropped in like I don't know some tiny village in Alaska or who knows like how what would I have been like yeah I mean and it just goes to show you if you're around negativity all the time a lot of times you know it's it's that that nature versus nurture argument you know what's it might not be you that comes out and you have to be careful about like who you spend your time with and what kind of um you know circumstances you let yourself be around because there's a lot of negativity and just a lot of you know toxic environment that's around you all the time you can find yourself being somebody that you don't want to be. And I mean, and this, as far as this story goes, I think Karen is a product of that. And I, I hope that we get to see the real him, like the him that it would be if he was taken out of that environment. The smiling one, the artistic one, the one that we want to smother in hugs, like you said in your dream, you just want to <laughs> hug him. Um, I want to see that. I hope we get to, and I think we're going to, but I think it'll be a while. <laughs> know there's people who have a very um tragic conception of the ending and I'm like don't don't do it I don't want to say it because it's just like a little, I mean I don't know if it's spoilery that's just speculation but I think it's also yeah. too early in the story to talk about it but I'm like no I want things to be positive at the end yes I'm hoping for 
I, I mean, that's my my kind of story. Is I I like things to end well at the end, and for things to have moral meaning, for people to you know overcome their challenges and find redemption and find you know satisfaction and fulfillment. So that's I don't know if that's what the authors want, but that's what I want. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm there for the happy, sappy, you know, feel good. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I watch romantic comedies. I know they'll always end well. <laughs> Except my best friend's wedding. That ended terribly, and I hated that movie for that reason. Oh, I, didn't, I think I started it. I didn't finish it. <laughs> oh, don't watch it. Okay, um, thanks. <laughs> you want a happy ending. You're living with these characters that you kind of grow with, and you're loving them, and then to have, like, something ripped away or something tragic happen at the end, that's always heart-wrenching and like that lives with me for like a long time and I just kind of like dwell on it and think about it um mm-hmm. yeah to have yeah. that everything flesh out at the end to be happy that's that's good but I don't know that will happen with purple eyes and... <laughs> I know I mean their cup does say reader's tears so <laughs> or... Uh, so I guess we're all part of the same group of children who were all traumatized by Old Yeller when we were growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't remember that. I, I don't think I ever watched that one. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, the, the the instance that I think of when something ended badly is Rose and Bloom by Louisa May Alcott. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'm, I don't want to give spoilers, but basically she has a couple, a lot of cousins and one of them kind of goes down the wrong path. Yeah. And um ends up let's just say on the wrong path and you just realize you know this is a person who's making bad decisions he was a good person when he was younger he has weaknesses when he's older and he irreversibly um is on that path and it's just it's something that is realistic and you know i thought very true to life um but very tragic as well and i mean we all know people like that in real life too so but you know, it was only a part of the story. There were other characters in the story were better, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, that was something I know I, when I read it, when I was in like seventh grade, I cried for like five hours, I think. <laughs> Louise Mayalcott was like my favorite author growing up. I loved her stuff. Yep. I have to reread it actually. I have her books because I, I bought them, but I haven't mm-hmm. reread them for, I don't know, a couple of years. <laughs> My bookshelf is full of books that I have not read yet, so. <laughs> yeah. After tax anyway. What? Go on? Sorry. I was going to say, after tax season, she can get to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Tax season never ends. Like, April 15th is just the scariest one, but it, it honestly doesn't end after that. It, it keeps going. It's just, it's fine. <laughs> you know that meme with everything's burning around and the dog sitting in the middle? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's me right now. It's fine. This is fine. So, do you guys have any final thoughts on the episode as a whole before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Just my one word. This whole chapter, irony. It's irony. <laughs> yep, that's a good one. Good one. What would your word one word be, Corinne? Had one word. Um, hyphenated plot driven because you learn so much in this episode it's one of my favorite episodes of the early early ones that's good yeah plot driven i'm gonna go with conflict i think that's another good word emotional conflict all these characters are traumatized (laughs) yes 
sometimes then we love them that way yeah i mean that's what makes it compelling if they were perfect characters there would be no story very true <laughs> okay well thank you so much for coming on megan corinne it was fantastic it was so much fun chatting with you and diving deep i love it uh, I've always, I've, i'm really enjoying doing this it's a lot of fun to just have the chance to talk because none of my friends really want to look into it <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I mean, I like I said, I, I started this whole podcast back then, like when I fell in love with Midnight Poppyland, because I was like, I want to talk about it <laughs> in depth. I want to analyze every facial feature, every look, every glance. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll have to start a podcast. So thank you. This is definitely my selfish enjoyment time. <laughs> well, ditto. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great night. I'll see y'all later. Thank you to my current patrons, Susie, Lady Leverest, Alley Cat, Chelsea, Lily, Jenny, Haley, One and Only Taco, Elizabeth, Maria, Molly, Veronica, Emily, Emily, Joe Rochelle, Dahlia, Saucy Tuggles, Meg, and Anne Rose. I really appreciate your support.